Hello, I'm Ed Lattimore, a former professional heavyweight boxer and best-selling author of Sober Letters to My Drunken Self. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of looking danger in the eye, the connection between addiction and loneliness, and how Mike Tyson inadvertently got me back into the boxing ring. Stay tuned. Welcome back to part three of my conversation with Ed Lattimore. Now, this episode of... Curiosity Bites is brought to you by the Awesome Music Project, bringing music, story, and mental health together. All proceeds from the Awesome Music Project campaign will go to music and mental health research initiatives. You can find out more about the beautiful Awesome Music Project coffee table book in all the usual places, including Amazon.com. The book is featured in stores across the United States and Canada and everywhere else. It features wonderful stories about how music has impacted the mental health of so many famous musicians and others, including astronauts and people like Sarah McLaughlin. You can find out more about the Awesome Music Project and the AMP Foundation at theawesomemusicproject.com. All right, welcome back. And we are here with our guest for another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. He is a retired heavyweight boxer. He is a philosopher, an author, a warrior poet, best-selling author, and coach, Ed Lattimore. Now, Ed is, we've been talking about how he grew up, where he grew up. We talked about the, the power of environments. We talked about the lies we tell ourselves and, and addiction and the, the desire to be accepted. We've talked about the Tyson connection. We've talked about all kinds of great things. Um, and, you know, you've really gotten some great insights here into how a person, as we talked about in the part one, sort of reincarnates themselves in while they're still in the same physical form. Um, and the, the possibility of recreating oneself. Um, and so the question becomes, you know, there's this, there's this piece around, you know, we were talking before about boxing and about how it's, a, it's an escape route. And we talked about this desire to feel better. But in order to change, I have noticed in my work over the years that people tend to sort of say, you know, I, I'm, I'm flamed, I'm fueled by the anger, the rage that I feel against those people of that situation. And it does, it drives them, there's no doubt about it. And many people become very successful because of it. And other people say, I couldn't have become successful <clears throat> until I was able to find some level of forgiveness. Now, I will say, this is my point of view from my background, my research, is that both of those places have considerable faults. If you are, um, if you make up forgiveness, you know, I'm just going to forgive these people. They did the best they could with what they know. And you don't deal with the repressed emotions. That shit will become toxic in your system. And you're all walking around going, oh, yeah, I love everybody and I forgive everybody. <laughs> but meanwhile, you know, you're, it's putrefying inside of you. And of course, if you're walking around filled with rage and you're taking it out on everybody, that's going to putrefy every relationship you've had. You have seen the need for forgiveness. Talk to us about forgiveness, what it's meant to you and how you've approached it because it has been a part of your, uh, one would say, discipline. 
Yeah, so forgiveness for me is a system for dealing with, it's funny you mentioned the, the repressed emotions and how those become toxic. Because the way I think about it is, that's what forgiveness is there to deal with. And, and the lesson I always give people, or the example I always give people to, to really make the hammer the point home is, is first we need forgiveness and justice. And, and one is not meant to be a substitute for the other. And we use an, or an example I use is if, if someone is convicted for, for killing someone, right? Let's say someone, someone kills your mom, right? Uh, kills your kid, someone close to you. Uh, and, and they get a, they get the death penalty. Justice has been done, okay? What are you going to do uh, internally? How are you going to cope with that? No, no, no prison sentence is going to uh, heal you. No. Right. So you need to do some work. And that work is uh, people. I think people, when they approach the internal work of dealing with repressed emotion, I really think they start at it in a fundamentally erroneous method. They start trying to dig at themselves. And that is part of it. But if you never confront what happened and learn to look at it and learn to deal with it in some way to come to some kind of understanding of why uh, this person did what they did or why the world did what they did or why you did what you did to the three components of the things you have to forgive yourself, the world and other people, um, then you, you can deal with how you feel about it. Mm -hmm but you won't have dealt with the trigger and the potentiality of it happening again. What are you going to do? Like, mm -hmm. you know, are you going to be able to spot the wolf in sheep's clothing? Well, if you're not paying attention and you're just trying to forget them and only focus on how you feel, you leave yourself vulnerable to what could happen again. If you're dealing with someone who takes advantage of you, if you've made a mistake, and you forgive yourself for it somehow. If you don't take time to understand where you were coming from and why you made that mistake and what you hope to accomplish, because because like you said, everyone's trying to feel better. That is like a fundamental um, part of forgiveness that everyone does something because even, even if the outcome is tragic and horrendous and it looks like it's meant to hurt you, the reality is, is it's, it's always done to make them feel better. Mm -hmm. And you're doing something because you thought that the situation would be better well you if you don't take the time to to dive into that you're going to make the mistake again if you don't understand how the world works and realize that a lot of times what happened to you is just collateral damage you're not going to be able to deal with it when the world <laughs> deals you a bad draw again okay so so for me forgiveness is is mainly to deal with the emotional damage that occurs and no, the, the no retribution and for the physical world can deal with, right? We, we, we see this a lot in abuse victims. If the abuser is still caught, sends whatever, what about, what about the damage done? We, we still got to do something about that. Right. And, and we still have to do something <clears throat> about the, the outlying relationships we have with the world. You know, I, I know a girl who, who unfortunately was abused by her father. 
And now her relationship with men is completely messed up. The the, the father got the the time he should deserve getting. You know, I don't know how prison justice is dealing with him now, but he's there for the rest of his life. Right. Okay? But what about her life now? What is she going to do? Well, you know, it's an interesting piece here. And I have my own philosophy around certain things around this. But, you know, we, we tend to sort of look out there at them and say, oh, you know, it's them but we don't bring it back here and we don't understand that I believe that people don't understand this about themselves, but there is no true forgiveness of another until we forgive ourselves. Absolutely. And, and well, people say, well, my father molested me. Why should I forgive myself? I didn't do anything wrong. And of course you didn't do anything wrong. There's no doubt you didn't do anything wrong. You were a child and your, your parent abused you in whatever form it was. Nobody's putting any of that on you except maybe one person. And they go, well, who's that? You. And you go, How? but I don't. And I go, I understand you don't. And they go, what do you mean? You just said I do and you understand that I don't. And I go, yeah, because you don't understand that you don't exist in that time. Mm -hmm. and you go, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. You, the adult, forgive you. You, the, the adult, understands that it was not your responsibility. You, the adult, understands that your parent or whoever it was was screwed up or, or you know, had problems, and, and it was their fault. And you get that, and you're okay with that. So you got nothing to forgive yourself for. You get that. But that child didn't see it that way. Right. That child said... I must have done something wrong. I must be bad to have gone through that situation. And it's possible that even as an adult, you believe that you've got some kind of thread of badness running through you because of that. And that forgiveness is the most difficult part because most people never have the courage to go back and say, what is it that this little boy, this little girl, this little version of myself feels like they're guilty of that I, I don't know they're not, but that they can't forgive themselves for? Because it's only then that we can ever forgive anybody else. Anything else is some level of, it's a game, it's a pretend. Yeah. <laughs> Man, like, like you said something you said it a little differently than how I say it, but spot on. The the idea about your past self and them not understanding kind of what, what happened or why. I always say that one of the reasons we hold grudges and we can't let go of the past is because we think if we, we feel a certain kind of way strongly enough and long enough that we're going to be able to alter the past and change it. Now, we might not consciously have that thought. In fact, I think almost no one does. But that that's what we hope. Like, that's the only, or, or at the very least, that's the only resolution to those feelings. And once you accept that that's not possible, which is a hard thing to do, and you can't accept that until you realize that's what you're doing. And that involves recognizing that you have not completely forgiven yourself for what occurred even if you understand it mentally right now that you can look at it and go you know not my fault but you still are harboring something 
And until you can confront that, you know, I, I, I talked to, I have a friend, I, like all of my experiences, completely anecdotal, nothing like clinic or anything like that. I have a friend um, who, who was assaulted on the trip when she was 18. And she talks about how all of these people involved, she's forgiven, including the guy, haven't, hasn't forgiven herself yet. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, you got to understand that until you do that, none of that really like you, you haven't really. And then you, you can actually see it. And then the future relationship she's had, I've known her for a long time, uh, because you haven't looked at the fundamental comedy, the, the, the thing that's common, you and all these situations. If you don't if you don't deal with it, if you don't look at yourself, you can't you can't move forward. You can't make changes. And and I and and you want to like you know pull that back to my situation. The first person I had I practiced and I really remember going working on forgiveness with was my mom, mm-hmm. right? Because the the relationship was deteriorating, and I decided to put into practice forgiveness when I when I got really introduced to the idea when I was twenty three, no less, right? Which I was now looking back, I'm like. It's crazy. Uh, the the because I don't, I don't think it was a, the, the, a mature way, but it was the best way I understood it because I knew there was a problem and I wanted to fix it, and, and it was great. But I still ended up with a lot of problems <laughs> and a lot of issues I had to deal with later in life, and I realized I was still harboring some anger because you 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 when you when you think you've forgiven but you haven't, something's going to remind you that you haven't. And when you that's, do, that's very key. I think what you just said <laughs> is really important because there's a lot of people walking around believing they've forgiven. And then somebody comes along and lights that fuse and you go, Oh, that's my old shit. And you're like, You haven't forgiven. <laughs> right? I remember a client of mine years ago who was, you know, had some serious mom issues, um, an abusive mother in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, and we tried to do with some work on it and he really didn't want to go there. And I, you know, I eventually just, I had to fire him eventually because he wouldn't do the work. And, um, he came back to me about three years later and he said, yeah, I want to work on this area. I was like, oh, it's great. Okay. And he goes, I really want to, I want to become in the top 5% in my industry of what I do. I said, absolutely fantastic. So I said, uh, so tell me before we start, how are you doing with the whole mom stuff? He goes, oh, he goes, I, I'm, I'm done with that. He goes, I did a landmark program, landmark program. I'm complete with that. I go, really? And he goes, yeah. I asked him three questions. He was bawling on the floor. I said, you're not done, man, because you've reframed and compartmentalized does not mean you're right. done. Because I just, all I did was just right now a set a fuse and you went down that road because you can't not go down that road. So you know, this is the thing that we all forget. We're all, we think because it's compartmentalized, it's dealt with. It's not dealt with. And so, you know, I had the same thing with my mom, you know, all kinds of dysfunction up the yin-yang, you know, and my mom just passed last week. And I had to, you know, I, I spent a long time confronting my mother about the issues of my childhood and what went on and what she allowed and all those things. And I, my intent in all of the conversations was to understand how she became who she was 
so that I can understand how I became who I was, so that I could forgive me for the behaviors I had, and therefore I could forgive her. It always comes like I, I want to, I, I, this is the key with this conversation. Curiosity bites. People ask me about it all the time. And mm -hmm. I say, listen, questions require answers and someone ends up wrong. Yes. Curiosity requires understanding, which deepens my relationship with whoever it is. So I needed to forgive. I needed to not just jump into forgiveness. Oh, I forgive you, which is horseshit. I have to become deeply curious about you. What, you know, what is it that got you to that place that you were this way with me? So I had a conversation with, with my mom that I recorded uh, last year when I was back visiting her when, when she was diagnosed. And she spoke about myself, my next sibling, which is my sister, and then my next sibling, which is my brother. There's a bunch of us, but the eldest three. And the way she referred to my sister so nonchalantly made me like I wanted to bawl crying and it, because she was so dismissive of my sister who is magnificent with her, was magnificent with her, took care of her every day. And I, and I only thing I could understand was because I got to know my mom and I got to discover all these things, I got to understand how my mother felt about herself. Mm -hmm. So she just transferred that onto my sister. And this is now that's not my job to forgive. That's got nothing to do with me. But it's that curiosity about finding out these dysfunctional behaviors. Now that took you into a different path. You know, we talked about alcohol. There was also porn addiction. And now you help people with that. Talk mm -hmm. to us about the 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 you know, sort of give us a quick overview of your movement into that world. And then how you sort of, again, had to recognize, because I've said all the time, I say constantly to people, everybody's addicted, so stop looking down on people. Because <laughs> guess what? If you're in a 12-step program, you're addicted. Uh, to what? Maybe AA, maybe to coffee, maybe to right. cigarettes, right? And you go, well, I'm not addicted. You know, I'm helping these people. No, you're addicted to helping. Or I'm not addicted. I go to church all the time. You're addicted to helping at church. We've all got our ways to feel better. These are our addictions. It's the way the brain works. That's fine, but we trans. Uh, this one of the things we see. You know this from twelve-step programs. We see people give up one form of an addiction, and and take on a new form that's more socially acceptable or a little better hidden. So I can't be drunk in public anymore. Everybody knows I'm on the wagon. So now what? Well, I'll go home and I'll wank fourteen times a day and spend <laughs> a lot of time on Pornhub or whatever it is right? Until I get blisses on my nub. And then I can, you know, but nobody knows. And now I've got extra shame. So talk to us about that, that movement of one addiction to the next. So I found out, and, and when we say movement, it's not like, you know, it was one than the other. Like, no, no, no. From, in my world and now all of this was going on yeah. uh, simultaneously. Right. And and it's funny you talk about like from one addiction to another, because because until you you know deal with stuff, you're going to just replace it with other stuff. Yep. And that is you know what booze I I can get away with that. 
and and get away with it in a positive way because because one of the things that really helped me is I had so much going on. Porn, not so much. Porn was a was a harder beast to grapple because porn is unique uh, amongst all the other addictions. Porn is unique because it's the one that does not have a social component to it. You can go find a group of crackheads if you want, and you guys are all going to be hanging out, smoking crack together. Yep. And that sounds nuts, but when you think about the way you gotta try, we're back you to it. Try, right? Porn, not no, you don't. It, it does the opposite. Mm-hmm. So you have to approach. You have to approach porn differently. You you have to approach porn um, more intellectually at the beginning, but then you realize, well, the, this thing has hijacked a basic part of me, and now I need to like really discipline myself to do it but what i found in my group the same principles kind of applied you know we 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 getting guys to go who couldn't stop using porn at all we're talking like the three four day king Mm -hmm. and these guys are putting together 40 50 day streaks without it and the biggest difference between a survey and my observation between when they did it Malone and the group is they had a group. They had they we we found a tribe to help other people. Mm-hmm. What's this got to do with me? The hardest thing for me was not having people around me to deal with this. I had to find other ways. And when I wrote my book about sobriety, the the what I write on the back cover, the what I write in the dedication, one of the things that I write. The, the thing that continues to run through it is I wrote the book because I wanted people to, I didn't want people to feel alone making the choice the way I felt alone. I mean, I really felt like I had to do this for me and there was no support. And then there was support, which is crazy. But I remember when I, on my first night getting sober, I wrote, I, I messaged my friends when I left the AME and I said, guys, I know, I understand if you don't want to kick with me anymore, but I'm just letting you know, just, just left my first AA meeting, I'm done. I'm off the booze, I, I committed. But I did it with fear, that was, I mean, that was that was fear. I was more afraid of that than anything in the ring. And I had a bunch of, but, but I didn't have any, you know, real support and I didn't want to be alone. But I figured out, but I was so busy, I didn't have to be. But I know a lot of people don't have, didn't have the option of having the life that I had where they were going to be very busy. So I, that's what, what motivated me to write the book. So people could realize they're not, they, you know, you're not alone. Even if, even if it's just picking up this book, here are some ways to cope with that feeling of aloneness, right? And when you do with the porn, these guys, they got to, I didn't, I, I didn't have anyone to chat with about porn because that, that's weird, right? <laughs> you know, or, or everyone thinks it's weird. Okay, so what you know, I just I, I just found different ways to distract myself and, and work on other things, and, and eventually, you know, I meet meet my my fiance, and and, and I, you know, uh, one of the things I talk about in the group is like you know, it really helps if you get a girl. Like, like we can we can go really far without one, but you gotta kind of understand what you know what you what you're dealing with. But even beyond just the base physical release, having people around makes the difference. One of the things I tell guys is get in the habit of, of messing your friends and seeing how they're doing. That's going to make you connect differently with people. And it's going to help. I find that loneliness is the biggest enabler uh, there is. And if you can get around the loneliness, 
you're going to be okay. And what I had to do was figure out how to not be alone. And more importantly, unfortunately, I, I like I, I don't think I could have did it in reverse. I don't think I could have did porn and boobs because my booze was my, my coping mechanism and how I, I spent time with people. But because I did booze first, I learned how to be alone without booze. <laughs> I learned how to not seek the comfort of the group uh, because I, at this point in my life, I was seeking respect, which is a lot harder to gain than being liked and being accepted. But boy, does it, it's just a, a better- so Talk to us a little bit about that for a minute. Yeah. Um, you know even in the end of this session, I want to talk to you about, about that, that, that seeking respect um, rather than just company. What was, what was that? What, like, what brought that on? Like, what made you realize that you wanted respect? Oh, um, put simply, I realized I had the courage finally to go, you are a fucking loser, dude. Like, like that's a hard thing to do anybody, but I did it and I knew I had to do it because I remember the point in my life where I was at, I, the, the, very clear. I was working at T-Mobile, I was selling phones. It was 27 and I couldn't afford a place. Uh, my friend was letting me uh, rent a room in his house. He had a house <laughs> for $200 and I had nothing and i was trying to go out i remember being frustrated because i was trying to go out and party but somebody walked into the store and the way it works is like you know we close at nine o'clock mm -hmm. we can't let you in if you show up at nine one but if you show up at 8 59 you spend an hour in there we can't kick you out right? right and this person stayed and they didn't even buy anything so i just wasted time and i was i remember being mad and thinking i'm better than this I just, I just gotta be some different, some more. So that, that starts the chain reaction of making change. Didn't get sober yet, but starts the chain reaction of making some serious changes. But it all started with me going like, bro, like you have nothing. You're trying to go and spend money that you don't have, knowing that you got all these other issues, you know, all you have is boxing. And if that gets taken away, yeah, I wasn't even getting paid. I wasn't pro yet. Right. right. I was just basically living on being being uh the, the biggest degenerate. Like that was like everyone everyone finds a way to kind of kind of blend in. Yeah. And on top of that, I was still a little cognizant. I didn't really like the company I was starting to be forced to keep. I was right. like, uh, you know, because because if, if you're getting better and your friends or your friends are getting better or they're really staying the same, and you kind of aren't, eventually you're gonna separate. I mean, that's just, just how it is. And so I I, I made that that acceptance and I said okay we got to be better you got to do better and then that starts me listening to military thinking about going back to school eventually leads to me you know the sobriety all this good stuff but but it all started with, with accepting that, that I wasn't much at all that's the hard that's the hardest person to admit it to because when someone says it to you you can you can get you get defensive you think you take it as an insult and, and you're like that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Fuck him! Like now nah, that you know that that's how that goes. But when you when you sit by yourself and you go, and you got no one to argue back, but you gotta have the courage to do that. And I, and, and I, I'm really happy I did that because who knows where I would be if I was still lying to myself? Because that's what it was. It was a lie. You think yeah. you're cool? You're supposed that, to be, that, you're supposed that to lie. courage. <laughs> 
that courage to look in the mirror and see who's really there. Oh man. Not the, not the ego, not the image, but the truth that is hard. Um, it's hard oftentimes because the people around you, by virtue of who we are as humans in our tribe, we surround ourselves with people who will validate us. And so they validate our shitty behavior mm -hmm. and they validate us staying stuck. And that, that takes an enormous amount of courage to go. Uh, all these people who love me are wrong. Right. Man, all dude. these people who really see all these great <laughs> things in me, they're wrong. Um, because I'm not stepping into what's possible and what I can really do. Um, and that takes enormous courage. We're going to come back in part four. I want to talk to you about your writing. And I want to talk to you about the guys that you're helping with sobriety, with uh, porn addiction, and, and how you have, you know, how you've gone from being that, um, that projects kid, um, you know, to alcoholic to you know, getting getting a degree in physics to to the military to now being a writer. And I believe that that's where you feel like your purpose is in writing and coaching others. We don't need to, we've covered enough of that background stuff to understand it, but I really understand how your writing works for you and how you use that to help others and how you are moving that into, or have moved that into the coaching world. So we're going to come back with our guest Ed Lattimore and uh, I hope you've been enjoying our conversation I certainly have uh, this is a fascinating man who's had a pretty incredible journey um, and I hope you'll come back for part four we'll see you in a little while till then stay curious my friends stay curious <laughs>